all political campaigns are arrogant, but some are more presumptuous than others. In 2016, Donald Trump waits in New Hampshire. His professional political career is off to an 0-1 start after a loss in the first in the nation Iowa caucus. A shock defeat in New Hampshire, something known to happen in the fickle, live free or die state can deal him a fatal blow. No matter how much attention the press fawns on him, if he loses here, he's what the establishment says he is. All sizzle, no steak. Not only is Trump the front runner from out of nowhere, he's done it by ridiculing the entire concept of running for president. Politicians, idiots who wasted their lives. Experience, if by public service, you mean making friends with lobbyists and shills, then he's glad he has none. Fox News, if they're gonna hire people that'll criticize him on stage, then screw them. When he wins, they'll all have to fall in line. But for that to happen, you have to win. In 1960, John F. Kennedy waits in West Virginia. His first primary contest in Wisconsin is a win, but all too narrow of one. Now he has to blow it out in a state openly hostile to him against an opponent with nothing to lose. No matter how much attention the press fawns on him, if he loses here, he's what the establishment says he is. All sizzle and no steak. Kennedy is a front runner, but it's a name only, largely because he's spending a ton of money very early in the campaign season. It's foolhardy. The most serious candidates handle things way differently. You wait, wait your turn to run. Wait until the convention to announce your candidacy. Wait until the party elders bless you. Jack does none of those things, but screw them when he wins. He'll show them all the old rules don't apply anymore. But to do that, you have to win. Two candidates with challenges to the well-entrenched system at critical forks in the road. If they lose, they're just another cautionary tale about why the common wisdom is there. All campaigns are arrogant. But 56 years apart, as the votes are counted on those chilly, fateful nights, some presumptions about how you run for president don't survive to see the sunrise. News dies and becomes history. But tonight, oh yeah, we raise the dead. This is an episode about the primaries. It is expected that if you are running for president now, this is how you do it. So, just so we're all on the same page, here's a very generalized summary of how our modern system works. Beginning with the Iowa caucus, an election year starts with a series of statewide votes for members of each party. The winner of those contests are awarded delegates from those states. Those delegates then go to the convention and vote for the candidate that won them to be the nominee. This usually leads to one candidate emerging with enough delegates to earn the nomination sometime in the early summer, a month or two before the convention at least. Our modern system rewards momentum. Get hot at the right time, stack your wins together, and drown out your opponents. Flawed though it might be, this system requires a candidate to gain popular support state by state. Ladies and gentlemen, our modern primary system. This is not the case in 1960. 
For starters, the primary system we know does not functionally exist. There are only nine contests, and only three of them reward delegates that go to the convention. Even if you win all of them, you wouldn't be close to the critical mass you need to clinch the nomination. So effectively, they're useless. In fact, they're worse than useless. They're a death trap. Because the way you actually get the nomination is to wait until the convention itself and at the right time officially enter the race for the first time as the convention is predictably deadlocked with nominees that can't garner enough delegates. This means you have to be the compromise candidate. Everyone else tries. No one can do it. You're the person that everybody can agree on. And this becomes the place where the candidates with the best resumes perch and wait for their moment to strike. Just to make this totally clear, this means that somebody can arrive in the city where their party's convention is taking place, have no announced plans that you are going to run for president, and then by the time you get on the plane to leave, you are the party's nominee, and you're getting ready to begin your race for the White House from Labor Day to Election Day. But again... You've got to be the compromise. If you ran in a primary contest and lost, then everyone would know that you'd lost. That means you don't run in the primaries. All right, so let's say it's 1960 and you really want to be president. What's the conventional wisdom? Here's the first thing you do. You make sure you're in good standing with the smoky back room. This is a euphemism to describe sitting politicians, heads of major political party machines, and major market business interests. All right, so they think you're a contender. What next? Well, you go around the convention floor and you try to make sure you can get as many delegates as possible to say that they are going to vote for you on the first ballot. If you can get the most delegates of all your peers, then you are the front runner. Your job is to bat back anybody else that might try to erode your first ballot lead. If you're not in the lead, then what you do on the first ballot is explain to anyone who will listen that the front runner sucks. If there is no critical mass of delegates on the first ballot, now you move to the second and third and fourth. This is when the delegates start to get a little chaotic. They can move from candidate to candidate. The twists and turns of those successive ballots are determined by the smoky back room. They know who's losing. They encourage those candidates to step aside. They're the ones who steer the delegates from one camp to another, with eventually all the warring factions coming together to vote for a nominee. But make no mistake, this is a game of chess for the smoky back room. Nothing happens unless they move the pieces. If our modern system rewards momentum where you go state by state and drown out your opponents, think of the 1960 version like Shark Tank, each candidate individually pitching why they believe their plan is the best, with the sharks fighting with each other to determine who indeed will get the collective blessing. This is just how business is done the convention way. It also makes it all the more remarkable that the Kennedys decide that they're going to invent our modern system as a way of circumventing the way things have always been done. And here's that plan. The one thing that the Kennedys believe the rest of the political world don't have a handle on is the media. Specifically, how much you can make yourself a national icon if you work in concert with them. And remember, 
At this point, we're only 33 years away from the invention of the television. So, step one, you create a campaign built to get your message out via mass media. To that end, the Kennedys purchase one of the first videotape machines ever sold to a private citizen. Not only can they use it to record all of Jack's speeches, they have some more creative ways to use it, and we'll get to that a little bit later in the series. Either way, it's revolutionary, and it's the reason we still give credit to the Kennedy campaign for taking advantage of television, 33 years, as I mentioned, after it's created. Quick digression, though, to the Trump campaign. On January 1st, 1983, ARPANET adopts TCP-IP protocol. This creates the network of networks that we understand as the modern internet 33 years later in 2016. We have our first candidate that truly understands the full power of the social networks that have bloomed on that modern internet named Donald Trump. Weird, right? All right, back to the Kennedys. Now, the practice of a candidate bringing the press along with them on their bus has long been established, but the Kennedys got a better idea. They're going to buy a plane. The reason for the purchase is to protect Jack's bad back. This is a wartime injury. But it also puts the reporters that you're flying in a very good mood if they can get to their destination in an hour instead of a five-hour bus ride. Once you've got a relationship with the press, you got to give them something to talk about, which brings us to step two. Run in the primaries and become the story of the election before any of the heavyweights even get their pants on. The primaries are a liability if you plan on fighting at the convention, but for the Kennedys, they're also empty bandwidth. Frontrunner status at the convention is bestowed upon a person who has the highest delegate count and press attention. The Kennedys can do both if they take the primary seriously. There's only one problem. There can be no room for error making a big, splashy, early entrance. The second they announce they're running in the primaries, there is a massive bullseye on their back. Anyone and everyone who has any designs on the White House is going to be looking to trip them up so they won't be a threat at the convention. In fact, they find their first opponent months before the crew decamps for the first primary state in Wisconsin, Eleanor Roosevelt. In the early campaign season of FDR's first re-election campaign, Eleanor begins writing a six-day-a-week newspaper column entitled, My Day. At first, it's kind of like Twitter. She talks about what she did and how she handles the pressures of public life. But when Eisenhower is elected in 1952, her column begins to take a far more political tone. This is controversial for the era, and Scripps Newspaper Syndicate drops her column altogether from their papers in 1957 because she's being too political. At the height of my day's popularity, the column is printed in 90 papers, giving her a daily reading audience of over 4 million Americans. 1960 is Eleanor's last campaign as an influential public figure. And she had one last dragon to slay. The Kennedys. Remember, this history goes 
back and includes Eleanor's husband, FDR, firing the patriarch of the Kennedy family, Old Joe, for being too soft on Hitler. Eleanor doesn't like the way the Kennedys spend their money. She doesn't like the inexperience of JFK. And she doesn't trust the moral compass of the Kennedy clan. Specifically, the Kennedy relationship to Joseph McCarthy. She reviles McCarthy. Just to give you a sense of how bad she hates this man, here's an interview with Eleanor in 1959 when she's asked the question if she would encourage young people to go into public service. Well, there was a point a few years ago where I emphatically would have said no because I thought that we had lost our sense of really wanting people to think freely for a while. This was the McCarthy period, so-called yes. period in American yes. history. 1953, Joseph McCarthy is put in charge of the Senate Committee of Government Operations. McCarthy soon realizes that the Government Operations Committee held within it the Senate Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations. This leads to his crusade against communism. He appoints Ray Cohn as his counsel and a 27-year-old Bobby Kennedy as assistant counsel. Why Bobby? Because McCarthy is a great friend of Bobby's father, old Joe. They hated commies with about the same fervor. McCarthy's such a friendly face that he's been to the Kennedy compound in Hyannisport multiple times and dates not one, but two of the Kennedy daughters, Patricia and Eunice. Eleanor Roosevelt, on the other hand, is like an increasing number of Americans, furious with McCarthy, and sees his antics as an active erosion of faith in government, not to mention an unreasonable heightening of the Red Scare. It's bad enough that the government of two superpowers are at odds around the globe. McCarthy making it so personal, ruining lives based on fear and gossip. Eleanor believes this is inhumane. She repeatedly takes McCarthy to task in her column and asks for fellow Republicans and Eisenhower himself to rein him in. But she knew McCarthy isn't acting alone. She knows Joe Kennedy. So she also starts to pick on the rising family star, Jack. She makes note of Jack's Senate voting record and his lack of action on civil rights legislation. But most notably, his failure to censure Joseph McCarthy. As JFK's 1960 campaign is only months old, the first national media figure to sniff it out is Eleanor, and she tries to kill it before it even gets going. In a Saturday Evening Post column in 1958, she writes that the Kennedy team reached out to her during that 1956 push to make him vice president, the one we covered in the first episode. She writes that she rebuffs him then because of his lack of stance on McCarthy. This is a very tough position for Jack to be in. Eleanor Roosevelt is still a very important figure to Democratic voters, and Jack is still a relative unknown on the national stage. If he pushes back too hard, he's going to be the guy who started a fight with a sainted party leader, no matter how much she baited him into it. But Eleanor, oh, she doesn't quit. She continues to reiterate that Jack voiced support for the censure of McCarthy too late and for the wrong reasons. JFK tries to organize a face-to-face -face meeting with Eleanor to calm things down behind the scenes and got zero response. 
Eleanor gets more direct during a December 7th edition of a television program called the College News Conference. Eleanor says the following. His father's been spending oodles of money over the country, probably has a paid representative in every state by now, end quote. Now, in our modern context, serious candidates having representatives in battleground states, oftentimes years before an election, is not odd. But in a world without competitive primaries, one in which the real presidential campaign starts after Labor Day in an election year, that can smell a whole lot like unfair gamesmanship. More to the point, it can smell a lot like Rich Daddy buying his boy an election. JFK didn't take this one sitting down. He writes a letter to Eleanor asking for a retraction, quote, because I know of your long fight against the injudicious use of false statements, rumor, or innuendo as a means of injuring the reputation of an individual, I am certain that you are the victim of misinformation, and I am equally certain that you would want to ask your informant if he would be willing to name me one such representative or one such example of spending by my father around the country on my behalf, end quote. In short, stop spreading rumors. You wouldn't like it if I repeated the ones I hear about you. But Eleanor doesn't budge. She replies in her own letter to JFK, quote, Building an organization is permissible, but giving too lavishly may seem to indicate a desire to influence through money, end quote. Kennedy takes the feud public and says his response to that letter to his friend Philip Graham at the Washington Post. Eleanor follows suit, copying JFK's protestations into her My Day column. Eventually, Eleanor ends the back and forth this way. My dear boy, I only say these things for your own good. I have found in a lifetime of adversity that when blows are rained down on one, it is advisable to turn the other profile. End quote. In other words, welcome to the big show, kid. If you can't take an old woman saying mean things to you in the newspaper, you're going to get eaten alive when you really enter the fray. It would not be the end of their feud by a long shot. The first stop on the Kennedy primary tour is Wisconsin on April 5th, 1960. This would be a real challenge for him since he's running against Hubert Humphrey, a senator from the neighboring Minnesota. Again, the only way that this primary strategy works is if Kennedy doesn't lose a single contest that he's put significant time and money into. One second place finish. And he's weakened enough for the convention jackals to pounce. So Kennedy needs to beat a known quantity in a state where Kennedy has no history. Now, the difference between the two candidates is that one of them is playing the game the way it always used to be played, and the other is playing the game in a way that it would forever be played after this. Not only did Kennedy have the plane and the money and the pollsters to sniff out all the right voters to talk to, he's got the Kennedys themselves. A famous family of surrogates who can all make local voters feel special. Even Patricia Kennedy's new movie star husband, Peter Lawford, mixes it up on the Wisconsin Trail. But Wisconsin also is the coming out party for Jackie Kennedy nationally. The beautiful wife of JFK, tours small town to small town, lending grace and glamour to the campaign trail. Meanwhile... Humphrey stands on street corners, giving people cards that describe the recipe for his wife's famous black bean soup. Here's how he describes what it's like to run against the Kennedys. 
It's been Mrs. Humphrey and myself. You see, I sort of feel like an independent merchant uh, competing against a chain store when I compete with the Kennedy family. <laughs> Humphreys is touring Wisconsin in a bus. A bus that becomes famous on the trail because the heating keeps breaking. It leaves reporters and candidates alike in an uncomfortably cold ride from one town to another. To give you a little perspective on this, this is how Theodore White describes JFK on his private plane in the book Making of the President. Quote, Having finished his soup, he moodily stared out the back windows, a lightning storm flashing across the distant sky. And as the lightning burst, the great ranges of the Rockies clear beneath him while the plane bobbed back and forth. He hunched his knee up under his chin and swung his chair back away from the window to his friends. Man, it is amazing what kind of prose you can come up with when your teeth aren't chattering, huh? Contrast this with the bitter Humphreys spitting bitter quotes to a reporter while their visible breath disappears just as fast as his chances in the freezing Wisconsin. The final results are this. Kennedy scores the victory 56% to Humphreys 44. Look, a win is a win, but this is not enough to knock Humphrey out of the race. It sets the stage for the Decisive contest of the 1960 Democratic primary, West Virginia. Humphrey is spoiling for a fight, but he doesn't really have the ammunition. In fact, he's advised by his donors to pull the plug before he even sets foot in the Mountaineer state. He's dead in the water. And even if he beats Kennedy in West Virginia, there's no way he has enough momentum at the convention. But even without the money he needs, Humphrey refuses to quit. You never know what can happen. And Kennedy's about to face a really tough crowd. West Virginia does not like Catholics. And beyond that, the heavily Union state would be an uphill climb since Bobby had just taken aim at the Teamsters during televised embarrassing mob hearings. On the Kennedy side, running in West Virginia is controversial. Remember, one loss kills the dream, and West Virginia was one of those primary contests that didn't award a single convention delegate. This is a popularity contest. But ultimately... The risk is worth the reward if Jack wins. It's a huge indicator to everybody that he is the frontrunner at the convention. And Jack isn't shy about making exactly that case. During a televised debate, JFK spells it out. So I run for the presidency. And because the presidency is the people's office, as no other office is, it is my judgment that any candidate for the presidency should be willing to submit their name, their fortunes, their record and their views to people in primaries all over the United States. West Virginia has such a primary, and that is the reason that I am here. I did not have to come. I came of my own free will. There are no delegates involved. A setback here, a defeat, would be a major one. And so... It's time to do the work. Through the 1960 campaign, some of the Catholic question was handled very cleverly by the Kennedys and underhanded depending on who you ask. Here's the basic playbook. Step one, so anti-Catholic discord, kind of like what they did at the 1956 convention. This can be done by highlighting a quote from somebody or discovering a bigoted pamphlet. Step two, Jack takes the high road, 
declaring religion a non-issue and wishing it would go away so he can talk about the real things voters want to hear about. But by all accounts, inventing religious strife is not necessary in West Virginia. The largely impoverished Protestant voting bloc would be almost impossible for Jack to win over by himself. In the Kennedy's favor, though, if West Virginia is bigoted, it did not stop them from also being corrupt. Political machines in that area, specifically those representing the 86,000 voters in the coal mining areas of Charleston, are so brazen with their graft that they'd start bidding wars between the campaigns to find out how much each candidate was willing to spend per vote. In an average campaign, the going rate is between 2 and $3 per vote. The Humphrey campaign isn't stupid, by the way. They know how these machines work and know what they need to do to play the game. But Humphrey finds himself between a rock and a hard place when even his bribes start getting returned because the machines have received a better offer from the Kennedys. Here's one story. A Humphrey campaign official receives a returned bag of money in a bathroom stall because their price per vote bid has been rejected. Rumors have the price per vote in that county skyrocketing to $10 a vote based on the bidding. The normal going rate is two or three. Running out of moves. Humphrey needs to appeal directly to the populace. And so he pulls a stunt that in 1960 only started to gain traction. 60 years later, it, it feels kind of retro chic. Get this. Humphrey buys an hour of live television to take calls directly from viewers. Yes, before Instagram Live, before Facebook, before Twitch, the original proving ground for connecting to your audience by taking all of their questions is the live call-in show. Now, in 1960, these live television call-ins are usually staffed a little bit. You got somebody that can screen calls at the very least, and the more sophisticated versions made sure the first few calls that made the air were friendlies, just to highlight relevant talking points before you open things up to the chaos of the wider audience. In fact, it's something that Humphrey did really, really well in Wisconsin. Here's a clip of Humphrey in the landmark documentary Primary trying to drum up interest in one of these call-in shows. By the way, tune in tonight at 7.30. We're going to have another one of those television shows. And if you've got a question you want to ask, just pick up the phone and call me Glenn. Just pick it up and say, I want to talk to that fellow Humphrey at the TV station of the cross. And put that call through and ask me on the air. And you can make it tough, make it real tough, because people like it better that way. They like to see me squirm. Here's the difference between Wisconsin and West Virginia. Humphrey doesn't have the money to do it right. In fact, he's broke. He doesn't care who knows it. It doesn't make you feel very happy when the man walks into your room at 5.30 in the morning and says, Senator, we're in debt $18,000 and we have no more money for anything. No money for television, no money for printing. I say, where are the buttons? We have no money. So I say, all right, we'll just knock off the whole day, cancel out the program, and we'll get on this telephone. I'll call my friends in Minnesota. We'll call them in New York. We'll call them in Washington. We've got to raise the money. The cash for this call-in show that I'm about to tell you about comes from Humphrey's daughter's wedding budget. His own daughter is about to get married in a few weeks, and the dude takes the cash out of the money for the wedding. Humphrey's wife is 
furious. And that's just to get a bare bones operation. No pre-screener. No plants. The call-in show is a disaster. Here's how it's described in White's Making of the President. The first question is a normal mechanical question. What makes you think you're qualified to be president, Senator Humphrey? So is the second question. Can you be nominated, Mr. Humphrey? And then came a rasping voice over the telephone. The whining scratch of an elderly lady somewhere high in the hills. And one could see Humphrey flinch as the viewers flinched. And the rasp said, you get out of West Virginia, Mr. Humphrey. Humphrey attempted to fluster a reply, but the voice overrides him. You get out, you hear? You can't stand the Republicans getting ahead of you. You get out. The rest of the calls are either unfocused or apologizing for the mountain maniac, and that's before a local operator demands Humphrey clear the lines while he's on live television because there's a medical emergency that needs them more. Total disaster. And you want to know what? Humphrey is a big boy. He understands how politics works. Sometimes you get the bear, sometimes the bear gets you. He can handle the fact that he doesn't have any money. He can handle his call-in stunt going sideways. Hell, he can handle the fact that he can't bribe people correctly. All of that is fair game. Except for what happens with FDR Jr. Franklin Delano Roosevelt Jr. is the second son of Eleanor and the original FDR, and he's a classic Fredo. He's elected to Congress, doesn't do a lot because he's thinking that there's always going to be a next step for him. That alienates everybody in D.C. and spoils the waters for the future that he wants so desperately. Now, I don't know for sure if what I'm about to tell you has anything to do with the complicated love-hate relationship between the Kennedys and the Roosevelts, up to and including old Joe falling out with FDR before World War II and JFK's more recent feud with Eleanor. With that disclaimer, here's the story. FDR Jr. backs Jack for president in 1960, and the Kennedys put him on the trail in West Virginia. Not only that, but Bobby gives him some incendiary things to say specifically about how Humphrey dodged the draft. FDR Jr. balks. He's friends with Humphrey. He knows it's not true. Bobby insists. Allegedly leveraging FDR Jr.'s poor financial position against him, FDR Jr. does the deed, obliterating Humphrey on the trail while simultaneously trying to back-channel apologies to him. Humphrey is furious. This is the straw that breaks the camel's back. A dirty trick too far. In classic Kennedy fashion, Jack distances himself from FDR Jr. and the awful, untrue things he's saying about Hubert Humphrey's record. This leaves FDR Jr. in the breeze, a man who ruined a friendship and then gets left behind by the family that egged him into doing it. West Virginia is also the biggest ad spend to date for the Kennedys. While Wisconsin cost them $300,000, doubling what Humphreys could afford, the media bill for West Virginia in $1960 is between $1.5 and $4 million. In today's dollars, that's $12 to $33 million. Here's a modern comparison. Joe Manchin 
is a senator from West Virginia. He's a Democrat. And in the six years between his election in 2012 and his re-election in 2018, he spent $9 million to get himself re-elected. $9 million. Compare that to the $12 million in modern dollars at the low end for the Kennedys just for this primary race. And then, of course, there's the rumors. According to Chicago mob boss Momo Giancana, since West Virginia is 95% Protestant, the Kennedy campaign needed to be assured that the Union Teamsters would turn out for Jack. Again, this would be a challenge because of the mess Bobby made by accusing the Teamsters of being related to the mob in public and on television. According to Momo, and there's some other reporting on this, there's an agreement between the mob boss and old Joe Kennedy. Momo would make sure that everybody in the union would know who to vote for. In return, the Kennedys would always know who helped Jack when he needed it. Now, there is a little bit of a discrepancy here. Frank Sinatra tells friends that he's the go-between between Momo and Joe Kennedy. Momo says that he worked with Joe directly. And then, be it the fact that Humphreys weakened, or the Kennedys ran a good campaign, or the money, or the mob, on May 10th, Jack Kennedy does the impossible. A Catholic wins West Virginia, earning 66% of the vote, and Humphrey is done. The primaries are effectively over. Jack will waltz into the convention with more media attention, more pledged delegates, and more momentum than any other candidate, and not a hint of scandal follows. Never one to miss a chance to spike the football, Bobby takes a walk to Humphrey headquarters after the results are clear and makes his way to Mrs. Muriel Humphrey, the wife of Hubert. He offers her a kiss on the cheek, which she coldly rejects. When asked why she couldn't be nice, she tells a friend, I can't. You know, at that point, Humphrey still could have been a really important ally to the Kennedys at the convention. And hell, he could have even been a potential running mate. But from West Virginia on, Hubert makes it clear that it's a cold day in hell before he helps that family to the White House. And with that, Jack is the front runner. But as we mentioned at the beginning of the story, that's just the beginning. Waiting for Jack is the Democratic National Convention. It's where the heavyweights are waiting with more connections, more clout, and now a mandate to stop this Kennedy madness at once. The era of the Kennedys sneaking up on anybody is officially over. He's going to face two 
major challenges. The first from Lyndon Baines Johnson. And that's a man who knows that his time is running out. For LBJ, he played the game as well as anyone could, but he knew the earth was shifting under his feet. Elected to the Senate from the great state of Texas in 1949, by the time this election rolls around, he's the majority leader. But Lyndon's an endangered species, a Southern Democrat. LBJ knows more than anybody that civil rights is going to cut this party in half. And if he's going to make a move, he's got to make it now. The second, Adelaide Stevenson. He's back. After eating back-to-back losses in hilariously embarrassing fashion, Stevenson is still the favorite son for progressives. There's a great hunger for Stevenson to take one last swing at the big prize, this time without Eisenhower on the ticket. And he'd have one major champion in his corner, a furious, spurned, and determined Eleanor Roosevelt. The future is westward, and the Democratic National Convention in Los Angeles is one last glitzy free-for-all to secure the nomination, a knife fight in tuxedos. Raise the Dead is researched, written, recorded, and performed by me, Justin Robert Young. You can find a full list of our sources for this series at our website, raisethedeadpodcast.com. That's also where you can find our audiobook compilation and ebook of transcripts, which will both include a bonus episode if you support us by buying. I would like to thank my senior strategist, Tamar Sandell, along with Tom Merritt, Brett Rounceville, and John Teasdale for their extraordinary patience in helping me put this together. You can send me an email, theyoungamerican at gmail.com, and you can hit me up on Twitter and Instagram at Justin R. Young. I'd like to thank Bar 355 in Oakland, California, for your fantastic research facilities. And now, a few things that I didn't have a chance to get to. All right, so so let's talk about the Catholic issue for a second, specifically the idea that Kennedy running ginned up anti-Catholic bigotry, and that was something that the Kennedys had to work through. There's no doubt that a bunch of Protestants and, and folks who had a far different idea of Catholicism than we have today probably hated Kennedy. However... There is also the undeniable fact that the Kennedy campaign either used that sentiment to their advantage or planted it. W.J. Rohrbaugh in his book, Real Making of the President, says that the anti-Catholic leaflets that show up in Wisconsin were something that the Humphrey campaign believed was sent by the Kennedy campaign. And indeed, a Kennedy volunteer for Massachusetts was found to have mailed some of the offensive items. He was dismissed from the campaign, but it is unknown whether or not he decided to do that by himself or if it was coordinated. Here is something that was definitely coordinated. Patricia Kennedy's marriage to Peter Lawford happens in 1954. Uh, Lawford's been a star for about a decade at that point, and it really is the strongest bind between... Peter Lawford and the Rat Pack and the Kennedy family. Uh, Lawford eventually, he actually has a bit of a, uh, a complicated relationship with Frank Sinatra. They were both in the orbit of Ava Gardner, who has a very, very, very colorful uh, relationship history. But Frank and, and Peter had a bit of a feud and wound up kind of mending those fences in large part because Sinatra really admired Kennedy. And so Lawford gets into the Rat Pack. He starts starring in some of the movies with Frank and uh, Dean and Sammy. But it was also just another bit of Hollywood glitz to add on to a major campaign. Let's stay on Sinatra for a second here because (laughs) I almost started this entire podcast series with 
the fact that uh, one of the greatest interviews of the last forever is Vulture sit down with music legend Quincy Jones. It's one of the most magnificent. It, it, it's it's so great. It starts off with him trashing Michael Jackson as being greedy, uh, uh, and then it just it freewheels all over the place. It touches on Trump. I guess he dated Ivanka at some point, but he just breezes by this area. And I'm gonna read it verbatim. What's something you wish you didn't know? Who killed Kennedy? <laughs> I mean, talk about a great question and answer. So, follow up by the interviewer. Who did it? A Chicago mobster by the name of Sam Giancana. The connection was there between Sinatra and the mafia and Kennedy. Joe Kennedy, he was a bad man. He came to Frank to have him talk to Giancana about getting votes. So, let's talk about that. According to Momo Giancana, his connection was direct with Joe. Sinatra, which is likely where... uh, Quincy gets this from is insistent that Joe came to him to go to Sam Giancana. This back and forth and this election really plays a a pretty big role in the HBO movie The Rat Pack. Which is actually pretty good. I liked it. Alright, and Hubert Humphrey. Let's talk about Hubert Humphrey real quick. We're gonna see more of him, but... Just to give you an idea of where everybody is ideologically, Humphrey is very progressive. Kennedy, at this point, is much more of a moderate. So if Kennedy were to put Humphrey on the ticket or to align himself closely, he would have had to steer his candidacy in that direction. That's probably part of the reason why, considering where they wind up taking the ticket, Humphrey was never really somebody that they could make a permanent alliance with. Although, they probably would have had a better relationship had they not royally pissed him off. Next time, Richard Nixon is a fighter. Richard Nixon doesn't take no for an answer. And Richard Nixon is about to become president. But as far as coronations go, there are quite a few dissenters within his own party. In fact, some believe he is about to march it into conservatism. The conservatives are convinced that he's going to put it into a state of permanent liberalism, and his boss, outgoing President Dwight D. Eisenhower, doesn't think much of him at all. Nixon will attempt to make them all happy, and in the process, gamble not only his shot at the White House, but his entire career. The 1960 Republican National Convention and the battle for the soul of the party of Lincoln on the next Raise the Dead. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. (laughs)